Hi, Robert. What's up, Meryl? <laughs> How are you doing? I'm, I'm excellent. No, no complaints. Excited to be back to have this conversation with you. Me too. So today we are getting started with a new series um, discussing the teacher pipeline. The teacher pipeline. It's been a really big uh, conversation over the last year, especially. Um, so which direction are we going today? Well, we're going to start um, by checking in with a couple friends of ours. One is Dr. Khadijah Cooper. She's the assistant superintendent in Candler County. And the other is Dr. Cindy Chance. Cindy Chance is a lifelong educator, um, but most recently she is the executive director of the Georgia Association of Colleges for, Ed for Teacher Education. So they both have pretty informed voices over what the pipeline looks like. Um, both from a perspective of prepping teachers and uh, current students who might want to be teachers, and then also from putting people in the classroom and watching them work. So in, in light of how big the, the teacher pipeline challenges are and how diverse they are, what, what area um, of focus do they bring? Really interesting. Um, I loved this conversation. I thought it was really insightful talking about, you know, there are a lot of challenges, especially in rural communities, and there have been for a long time um, around maintaining a strong teacher pipeline, but they really dive into the issue of cultural competency and how important that is for the teachers who want to go be in the in the classroom to not only succeed there, but to thrive and to stick around. Here, we'll let them, we'll let them discuss it. All right, cool. Let's jump into it. Excellent. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today um, in this, our episode around the teacher pipeline. Um, as we know, the, uh, the issues around teacher pipeline in rural Georgia have existed for a long time. There've been struggles there in getting and retaining teachers. And there've been some important efforts recently to address that. Um, the, the raises that Governor Kemp put in place, um, currently using the CARES Act to increase that for the $1,000 for this year. I, that's not just a rural thing, but it certainly will affect um, teachers across the state. And of course, the efforts to bring retired teachers back into the classroom. Um, these are wonderful statewide initiatives, but I'm really hoping to hone in with y'all to understand what's, what's that impact look like in, in your communities. Um, so that's what brings us here today. And that's what thankfully has led y'all to lend us some of your time. Can I get you to introduce yourselves and to, to our listening audience? Cindy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you first. <laughs> sure, be glad to introduce myself. I'm Cindy Chance. I'm a retired Dean from Georgia Southern University and also have been a Dean in another state and an Associate Dean at the University of Memphis in the third state. So I've had a little bit of experience in teacher preparation. Uh, at the moment, I'm serving as the Executive Director for the College of Ed Deans Organization, which is the Georgia Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. So that's my position right now. We're so happy to have your voice with us. And Ms. Kadisha, can you introduce yourselves and explain your role? Yes, I'm Kadisha Cooper, Assistant Superintendent, Curriculum, Instruction, Federal Programs, Professional Learning in Candler County. And um, I am sitting in today for Dr. Bubba Long Greer, and I will be happy to contribute in any way I can to the conversation. So ladies, tell me, you are, it's interesting having a voice both from the K-12 system and from the teacher training and preparation perspective. What do you see 
with, with these interventions that have come along, are they going to meet? Where, how are they doing in terms of meeting what we know are, are cracks in the pipeline in rural Georgia for the teacher pipeline? I'll go. For, I'll go first on that one. I have been a classroom teacher and a principal in a very poor school system in Tennessee. And then I went to become the associate dean at the University of Memphis, which was also a, a, a high need school system, uh, but it was urban poverty. So I think the thing we're not dealing with in Georgia or anywhere across this country is the big elephant in the room and that's poverty. The school systems that are having difficulty in retaining teachers, it doesn't matter if it's rural, urban, or whatever. The issue is dealing with children uh, who have grown up in poverty and many of whom still live in poverty. And our teachers who are coming into the profession because of the higher and higher and higher admission standards to get into teacher preparation programs are not, are not candidates who have come from those backgrounds themselves. And, you know, 98% of the kids who are entering kids, I shouldn't say kids, the young men and women who are entering the teaching profession or entering teacher education programs are middle income and upper income kids from the suburbs. And they are not, they don't know how to deal with poverty. I grew up in poverty, so I understand rural poverty, but I did not, I do not understand, fully understand urban poverty. So I think the issue, you know, raising teacher salaries across the state is a wonderful idea. Having retired teachers to come back into the, allowing them to come back into the profession is a good idea. But I don't think it deals with the, the, the real underlying cause of why we have teacher retention problems. I think I also would encourage you, if you haven't looked at the Professional Standards Commission recent survey of, of the retention of prepared teachers in the state of Georgia. Those that are prepared in Georgia are staying in Georgia. The Georgia Southern, for example, where I'm a retired dean, after six years, 80% of our teachers are still in, in the profession. So what, what, who are we losing and why? And I don't think we have a real good answer on that. And the Professional Standards Commission basically deals with those teachers that are prepared in Georgia. And so I think there are two issues that we've got to deal with. Who is leaving the profession and why? And one of the reasons is that we're predominantly female. And after three or four years, those women are getting married and, and dropping out to have babies. Now, are they coming back into the profession? You know, I, I don't think we have good records on that. And I think the other issue is, are we really in the state of Georgia dealing with the poverty issue, uh, not only in the way we prepare teachers, but those kids, you know, those kids are the ones when we go into the profession. Those kids are the ones, that's the reason we go. And so, you know, are we dealing with the needs of those children in both rural and urban areas in poverty? That was a long answer. <laughs> Sorry. No, but I think it's excellent perspective. Um, Kadisha, have you seen that be the case when, when we talk about teacher recruitment? Are we, are you, are y'all able to find teachers who's lived experience matches your student body? Very difficult and um, I agree with Dr. Chance. Um, over the years, we found ourselves spending a great deal of time during our induction working with teachers on um, dealing with cultural diversity, um, 
teaching children in poverty, cultural competence, we've had to shift. When um, we first started doing induction programs, we <laughs> we brought them in and we talked about professional learning communities. We talked about the standards and our expectation for instruction. And what we realized was we were getting candidates who had a hard time building relationships with the students. Um, and I think that's a part of, um, a, a large part of what Dr. Chance just described. Just not coming from a background where you see some of the things that happen and not dealing with the type of parents um, that we deal with in the small rural poor community. Um, not that we don't have phenomenal teachers, it's just them not knowing um, where those kids are coming from and why they respond the way that they do. And then us having the right resources and the right professional learning where we don't overwhelm them and bombard them with professional learning, but try to close some of those gaps between, you know, their experience versus the child's experience. Um, our kids are inherently pretty good in our school system as far as behavior, but it's just some things that, you know, um, if a child is um, late or laying their head down, that something might happen in the home that has never happened in that teacher's home before. And just knowing and what has taught us what they really go through is this pandemic, because being on those Zoom calls and being on those um, Google meets to see in the background and hear in the background what's going on, you know, not, you want to go grab up some of the children and say, OK, just come on back to school because they do their, uh, experience some different things in their home life that we growing up as teachers did not experience. And so that has been a, a huge eye opener for us. The pandemic itself, just um, having a, a stronger connection with what happens in the home. And so I do agree with Dr. Chance. It's, it's a gap between um, the relationships that uh, teachers built with their parents growing up versus rural poverty kids, or even, I don't know about the urban setting either, but I imagine just poverty in general, just not knowing the choices that families have to make versus the choices that teachers saw their families making growing up. And so they don't understand sometimes where the kids are coming from, which a lot of times creates conflict. And that has also pushed us to um, adopt a soft skills curriculum to teach kids how to respond to, you know, adversity, how to have think win-win attitudes, growth versus um, fixed mindsets, you know, doing it with our staff and with our kids, in fact. Um, so that has forced us to look at the resources that we use to close some of those gaps. One of the things adding to that is once the accrediting bodies for teacher preparation, both at the state and the national level, increase the admission requirements for students getting into teacher preparation. And those admission requirements now, you, if you can get into teacher preparation in a state institution or a private institution either in Georgia, you can get into an MBA program, you can get into pre-law, you can get into pre-med, uh, because the standards are so high. So with the salary issues the way they are and the, the lack of respect for teachers that's going on right now, they're choosing, some are choosing not to go into teacher preparation because they don't see that as a respected profession anymore. And that is really um, making it very, very hard for us to recruit um, teachers who, who, um, who would be good in the classroom. And if I can add to that, um, you hit the, the nail on the head. Our local supplement in Candler is much lower than the surrounding counties. So we'll get a new teacher in, maybe one who's even trained with us um, via Georgia Southern and was a student teacher for us who loved our school system and everything we had to offer. And then they look next door and the supplement is 
five times the local right. supplement that we have and we lose them or, you know, we still take out social security and a, to a young person, it's hard to explain that this might be here later and this might be important to you. And so they go to the system that has a higher local supplement and not taking out social security. And we've, we've spent a couple of years in um, robust induction mm-hmm. and then we lose that teacher to another school system. So we face that issue as a, um, a poor area. I want to, follow on what you were sort of mentioned. So this disconnect between the student or excuse me, the teachers that we are able to recruit. um, I love the way that you sort of framed that is that as the standards have risen, it it shrinks the the diversity of people who could get into this field and make it from all the way from the beginning to the end and then into actually being in a classroom teaching a class. And I guess I have, gosh, I have two questions. Um, One is what efforts do you think would help change that in our rural settings? Um, And then I also, I don't want to lose the point that the pandemic, the effect that the pandemic has had on this. Um, I sort of expected um, this conversation to go more into, gosh, things have been, it's been a really stressful year. for teachers and is that how is that affecting retention but but saying no we have this other issue that's sort of a cultural issue and this is actually perhaps helping address that in a way that the schools have not and the training has not in the past that's fascinating to me and I'd like to hit on that as well one thing that we did do as a result of what you just said is um with some of the cares money we're budget we're get we're setting aside money uh, for the schools to come up with their own budgets to totally innovatively redesign March through May to close some of the gaps for children who are coming back into the building. And out of the box thinking, we're asking them, you know, if there's something that you could do that our schedule has not allowed for, um, we hadn't had the funds for to help close these gaps with children coming back in and to accelerate those learners who you know, who've been here and who are on track, um, what would it be and what would you do? And so our PLC teams are in conversation now coming up with redesigning the school day in ways that are more effective to meeting the needs of those learners who have come back in the building because um, we're 80% now with kids um, back in the building. And so um, they were very excited about the idea of being able to step outside the box, use different programs. And so each school will be able to come up with their own budget. So we're just trying to be as innovative as possible instead of doing it like we've always done and getting the same result, just trying to do something different so that these kids can catch up. And so I think we'll have to think about that as far as uh, getting teachers, retention of teachers as well, being innovative in ways like that. And one thing that comes to mind is charter flexibility. Sometimes you have to go out, recruit, and find these people who connect with your students and who have thought about teaching, but didn't want to come into the field, try to get them in and then send them through non-traditional programs like TAP or get them in the MAP program. I had a guy I've talked to several times and I think he's going to do the MAP program at Georgia Southern. I'm very excited about it. He was our um, Jousting's ring representative, but he comes and he's really excited when he's around the kids. And he came to me and said, I really would like to enter teaching. I said, well, what would you like to teach? And as we talked, you know, I said, gosh, he'd be a great guy. So um, African-American young man in his early thirties. And I think he'd be such a great role model. 
Long story short, he's working on his GRE. He's getting his stuff together so that he can get in the George Southern MAC program. But just going out seeking non-traditional people like that who have a passion for students and just don't know how to enter into the field as well. So I think we just got to get a little bit more innovative. I think in response to what you're just saying, I think it's clear now why Canberra County is, is being uh, invited to this conversation. Uh, I think your, your idea of letting teachers and school leaders make the decisions on how to improve, I think that does two things. One, it allows the teachers to focus on the needs of the children in that building. Now, having been a teacher and a principal in a, in a poverty rural school system and then moving to an urban school system, those are two different set of skills that are necessary in order to be successful with those children. So the success rate of your children will be probably greater than if somebody somewhere said, this is what we're going to do for all kids in the state of Georgia, period. And then I think the second piece that probably as important, if not more important than retention of teachers, you are professionalizing those teachers by saying, we believe you know how to teach school. And we're going to take your word on how you're going to do it. We're going to hold you accountable, but we're going to take your word on how you're going to do it. You are professionals, you're trained, and that's getting back to um, where I was when I first started teaching back when the earth was cooling. We did what we needed to in our classroom to meet the needs of that group of kids. And it changed from year to year and from school to school. And, and, but we felt professional. We, we were leaders in the community. The parents knew when we did something unique for their children because their children needed it. And so I think that will be a go a long way in your school system of helping the teachers see that, yes, we are professionals and we're being treated like professionals and therefore we're going to stay in this profession. And unfortunately, we lost a lot of that when we had all of these state and federal mandates that everybody's going to teach this way and everybody's going. It got so far in some school systems that, as you all know, that principals will go in. If it's the third week and the, and the fifth day, you're supposed to be teaching this one thing. Now that was ridiculous. That was absolutely ridiculous because children learn at different rates. Teachers teach different ways and different and, and different orders based on the needs of their children, or at least they should be on the, on the needs of their children. So I think that is a really strong uh, position. And as far as recruiting people as a second career, I think that's fantastic. And I applaud you for asking for encouraging this young man to get an MAT because once he gets that master's degree, that's a salary increase. That's a thousand dollar salary increase. And so, you know, you can get alternative certification, but it doesn't come with a salary increase. You still have to go back and take those courses later to get that, to get that master's in order to get that salary increase. So that in itself, I think is one way to recruit and retain teachers is making them feel professional and salary increases. Good uh -huh. job. <laughs> For the sake of our listening audience, can you sum up, you know, real quick elevator speech, the MAP program and the TAP program for our listeners? Sure. The MAP program is a, is a, is a master's degree. It, it is leads to certification, but it is a master's degree. So it also leads to a salary increase in Georgia and almost any other state in the union. 
uh, alternative certification programs, and, and universities have alternative certification programs as well, where you just take courses to get certified, but they don't lead to a master's degree. And there will be people that would be in those programs because they didn't do well on the GRE to get into a master's degree program. But then there is a TAP program, which is run by uh, usually RESAs across the state, and those are just courses that they take during the summer and during the fall, generally. And then they have a mentor in the school. They turn out really good teachers. There's no question about it. But if you look at the retention study that the Professional Standards Commission just put out, they're no better than traditional programs. They are quick uh, getting certification programs, but the retention rate is no better. Then and, and then there are alternative programs like Teach for America. And Teach for America is a very quick laying on of hands, as I call it, certification program. But it's for people who don't intend to stay in the profession long term. They intend to stay for a year, two years, maximum three years, and then they go back doing whatever it was they were trained to do. The problem with that, having been a school principal in a high need school, is you have, when you have too many Teach for America people, you have constant turnover. And when you have constant turnover, it's impossible for that principal to get a school culture and get everybody on board with the school culture because you've got this constant turnover of teachers. By the time you get somebody trained, they're gone. And you've got somebody else coming in and you've got to get them into the school culture and get them adopted. And there's also, in some cases, a concern of other teachers that this person didn't do what I had to do in order to get their certification. They're just coming here as a missionary uh, and then they're going to leave. And so that, that's probably more information than you wanted, but from a Dean's point of perspective, and then there may be a different perspective from the school system point of view. No, that was perfect, thank you. So it sounds like from a teacher retention standpoint, the issues are often, it's, it's culture, right? If I'm hearing that correctly, it's, it's a sense of respect for the profession. Right. Uh, it's, it's training to help support teachers navigate cultural differences right. and also a big need to bring more diversity into the pipeline to begin with. If, you, if you're pulling in the right people, then when they get to the other side, they're in the right place to right. stay with it. Um, and there are initiatives in place in Georgia to, to, to support that. I mean, the, the MAP program and the TAP program being two great examples. Um, is there any other thing you would like to highlight? Again, at this moment where some of these sort of gaps or, or cracks in the pipeline that have been there, these aren't new. Um, but there's more attention on them. And so as we are looking as a state into ways to address retention um, and recruitment, and I know right now the lens is of course coming out of the, the COVID crisis. Is there anything in particular that you think is, is relevant that, you, that this could be an opportunity to shine a light on? Um, prior to COVID and the pandemic, we were in partnership with Georgia Southern with the professor in residence. Uh, Dr. Wall was teaching classes at the middle school and we had a, um, a paraprofessional in our system who was also working on a teaching degree and was in her class. And he is now working for us. Um, it, it produced a quality teacher and um, the kids love him. Um, and, and we needed more diversity. So that brought a black male into the middle school where we didn't have one at the time. 
and now we have a couple, but him being in that class, coming in every day, interacting with kids and, and going to class, um, to me made a difference. If we could have more opportunities to have things, programs like that in place, um, and, and Dr. Wall, and I can't remember, um, I can see her face, but I cannot remember um, her supervisor's name, but they were very gracious in just working with us and scheduling and making sure we have the right spaces for the students, but also enough teachers participating where the students could go out into the classrooms. And like I said, it was very impactful having him in that program and in that building. And then we were able to retain him and he's still here today. I follow up on that 100%. Um, I taught a class, not in the schools, but I taught a class every year at Georgia Southern, even though the dean didn't have to teach because I needed keep, I needed to see what was going on. I needed to see what our freshmen looked like because I taught a freshman class. I needed to see what they looked like and then see them again when they were doing their student teaching. You know, had we done what we needed to do with those students while they were there? Having, that, having the university people in the schools I think is a dream that I have for all teacher preparation programs. One of the challenges we have right now, and I would love to see this be on the governor's um, to-do list, and that is giving credit for university faculty members toward tenure and promotion if they work in the schools. Right now, the only thing that really counts toward tenure and promotion, and if you don't get tenure in, in K-12 and higher ed, you're gone. Uh, and so the only thing that counts is research and publications. And it needs to be out there working in the schools, doing the kinds of things that you're talking about in the schools. That needs to count toward tenure and promotion. And the governor has direct voice to the chancellor and everybody at the university system. And if that, if that could happen, that would be a dream, I think, in, in helping us to do better teacher preparation. Not that there's bad teacher preparation, we just can get better and better and better. There is no end to how good we need to be in dealing with, with the issues that are facing education right now. Another thing that I would like to see have happen, and I had this conversation with some folks from the Department of Education, because we're also working, um, several of us are working on a strategic plan for the state on tension, retention and uh, recruitment and retention. And one of the things was, how can we get our accrediting bodies, both state and national, to say, okay, there may be somebody that wants into your program that you know would be a good teacher, but they can't score well enough on so-and-so, or they started to school years ago and they, their freshman or sophomore year was awful, and now their GPA won't let them get into teacher preparation. Some other states across the country have said, have have said we're going to allow up to 10%, a university can accept up to 10% of their students who don't meet every single criteria. When you accept them though, you have to have a plan in place to help them do whatever it is they need to do. If it's GPA, then how are they getting the support that they need in order to get their grade point average up? If it is a, a test, maybe they're just bad test takers, but whatever it is, there has to be a plan in place. But right now, that's not available in Georgia. So if we've got somebody that is a, a that would be great teaching in a, a poverty school system because of their own background or because of their experiences, but we can't let them in because of not being able to tick a certain box uh, on admission standards. So I would hope that, and that is something that I think will take um, an action of having Georgia to become a pilot state 
for accreditation, both state and, and national. If we were a pilot state and we say, we're gonna take up to 10, any institution can take up to 10%. And then we follow those folks when they get out of the school. Are they staying? And are they doing a good job in the school? That's all that matters. You know, having been a school principal, the only thing I cared about is that they were, that they could teach school and they were gonna stay with me. They weren't gonna leave. <laughs> that was what I cared about. Uh, I didn't care about anything else in their, in their life, just those things. So if we could, if we could get some Georgia to become a pilot state for accreditation, I think that would be another of my dreams fulfilled. I, I would love to see Dr. Chance's dream fulfilled as well. <laughs> and you could get some quality people who can't check that box that she was talking about. And one thing that we kicked around for years is how could we get them in maybe get them in on the, um, let me start over. How can we get them in to practice, like have a teacher on assignment, maybe pull a teacher out of the classroom for a year and she worked with those individuals who may not have met all those criteria, but could show, improve in the classroom and maybe have that teacher responsible for a couple of people like that and work closely with the university. Um, while they take their courses, they also work in the school system and they get that hands-on experience and they just show that they can do it, even if they had a low score on the on the SAT, ACT, or you know, Whatever. all these entry tests, absolutely. Um, just figuring out just innovative ways to, to help those who really want to be in the profession and, and can do a good job for our students. So I love that idea. I totally agree. And we just got to come up with ways to make that happen for people who struggle with all the criteria, get entry criteria. There's another conspiracy theory out there that the smarter you are, the better classroom teacher you are. Well, for those of you, and I don't mean this as an as a insult to higher ed, but all of you have been in classes with somebody in higher ed who has a PhD in their subject and they cannot teach school. There is no correlation whatsoever between my IQ and my ability to teach school or my grade point average and my ability to teach school. Now, obviously we don't want incompetent, we don't want people who are illiterate teaching school, but at the same time, there is a, there is a cutoff somewhere along in there that we really need to, to examine and have, like you said, the opportunity for people to prove that they can do the job rather than, um, us telling them at the very beginning, you can't do the job because you can't, we can't tick this box on your application. We hear all the time from a variety of industries, you know, the Georgia partnership, we obviously are wheelhouses education, but we have a foot in the economic development space. And we hear all the time over efforts to align um, training and industry around for example, nursing or in the manufacturing space or whatnot to make sure that we are efficiently, you know, making sure that that pipeline moves from step A to step B and step B to step C and that good people either don't fall out of it or have an on-ramp to get back into it. Right. Um, and it's very exciting to me to hear that conversation happening in the teaching space as well, because I mean, not only do we need good teachers and does every workforce and every element of our economy needs trained people. So we need people who are good at training, um, but also from just an economic development hat, our school systems are real big employers, y'all. We need, we need that pipeline. Communities, that's a strong, educated middle-class pipeline, part of the fabric of the community. Um, and having that 
alignment makes makes a big difference. And so this is exciting to hear y'all talk about it. Um, we, we, I, I like your dream too. Let's get that dream. <laughs> Let's get it done. <laughs> and as far as economic development is concerned, I guarantee you any business or industry that is considering coming into any county in Georgia is going to look at the quality of education in that, in that county. Yes, they, they are. are not going to move their families and their children into a county where they are not comfortable that the school system is going to uh, adequately serve their, their families. Uh, that they are going to be moving in with, and produce their for future workforce. And you can't exactly. have you can't have good schools without good teachers. Um, exactly, absolutely. Well, y'all, thank you so much for taking the time today um, and giving us this important perspective and insight around these issues. Um, we really appreciate you, and keep up keep up the good work. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank we'll you. <laughs> All right, so Meryl, we just had a, a fantastic conversation um, with Dr. Chance and Dr. Cooper, and clearly their area, one of the one of the focus areas is, is poverty. They talk about the elephant in the room being poverty and how that impacts uh, students. And then as you noted earlier, how ensuring that teachers as they're being prepared understand the context of the students they're serving and how all that plays into the preparation process and closing the gap between teachers' backgrounds and students' backgrounds to ensure success for both parties. Really fascinating. And I don't think I've heard that take before, but I, I can see clearly how big of an impact that would have uh, on teachers' success and retaining teachers who whose heart is to be in the classroom but sometimes run into challenges they weren't prepared for. Uh, absolutely. I thought it was a great conversation. It's very insightful and eye-opening to me. We have been talking for a long time and there's ample data to support the impact of poverty on a student, um, on their life from, you know, beginning all the way through early childhood, all the way through, um, the, down the whole education pipeline. But this perspective that that it doesn't just directly affect the students in terms of their home life or their challenges in their family um, or their household, but that the, the disconnect between the culture that they come from and whether or not their teachers can relate with them and connect with them and, and, and cross that bridge and bring them into the classroom well, I, I, it also has an impact. It's sort of a secondary impact of poverty, if that makes sense, which is a way of thinking about it that I was really re excited to hear. Absolutely. And, you know, compounding those challenges as most, most of us in the education space are familiar with is that you've got these real life contextual challenges and then you've got these external pressures around the teaching profession being attractive. So on you know one hand, what uh, Dr. Chance and Dr. Cooper talked about is poverty having an impact on students and teachers' abilities to actually be effective in the classroom. But before they even get to the classroom, one of the challenges we're also facing is overcoming the perception of the teaching profession as being worthwhile 
as being honorable um, and and persuading folks to seriously consider teaching as a career path. Sure. And given the high standards um, and the amount of study it takes to become a teacher, um, the amount of work that goes into it, there need to be supports in place to ensure that the cohort of folks that get into that pipeline are not just the ones who can easily afford it. We need to be pulling from a diverse group um, and that takes some intentionality. It's gonna take some, some work. The higher the standards get and the more sort of, um, I like you were discussing, you know, Dr. Uh, Chance's reference to the standards, it's, it's who are we pulling from? And then how good of a job is that cohort going to do? How well does their life and lived experience match that of their students? Um, right. Right. And what types of opportunities can we create to better prepare students to enter environments that may not be uh, what they're most familiar with, but that but they can be equipped to succeed in? And I think that's an important point that there are always going to be cultural gaps in industries and, and service oriented careers. But if we can acknowledge that, figure out interventions to support teachers to be prepared Broadly, you know, let them as yeah. we try and find people to you know fill the pipeline yeah yeah let them loose as, she, as dr chan said let teachers teach mm -hmm. you know if if we're saying they're professionals we're preparing them we're equipping them to be successful uh i, I guess very uh colloquially we say let them loose <laughs> you know that was a really good conversation. And it was also an excellent segue into our next installment, where we look at some possible interventions um, for some of these challenges. I'm excited, Meryl, about that conversation. And I look forward to catching you all who are listening next time. Hey there, listener. One more thing before you go. You've been hearing from us, but we'd love to hear from you. We at the Georgia Partnership always want to get better at what we're doing, so let us know what you think so far. Also, what are we missing out there across this great state? Who's doing cool things in your neighborhood to support the education and workforce pipeline? What innovations and solutions has your community come up with around economic development? Are there some great partnerships between sectors like housing, health, transportation that are making a difference in your educational outcomes? We'd love to hear about them and spread the word about good work being done across Georgia. We hope to hear from you. To contact us, go to our website, gpee.org, and click on the Contact Us tab in the top right corner. Or give Robert, our communications guru, a call at 404-223-2464. Thanks for listening, listener.